This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hey, it's Arvind Yuvraj and this is Futurescapes. Um, I've called it an audio time capsule that's not just a prediction of the world to come, more specifically in 2031, but a record of the times that we are in now. And I think in a weird way, um, the aspect of it being a record of today was always more fascinating to me than the part about predicting the future with the very, very interesting and incredibly intelligent people that I've had on the show so far. I love talking to them because we formed this idea of the world that we are in now and the things they saw coming or hoped would come in a future that hasn't even happened yet. There's something unexplainable about looking at time in retrospect. Um, It feels more concrete and there's a sense of progress, but also of lost time and things that will never be the same. In a weird way, um, we are in the future now, right? Everything that I knew growing up in the 90s and the 2000s is fundamentally different. The tech that we have today was unimaginable back then. And yet, somehow, as I've played at the end of each episode, there were people, these thought leaders, scientists, researchers, who predicted the world that we are living in now as far back as the 50s and 60s. And that aspect of it is what I love about doing this show, because there's no way of knowing for sure, right? These are essentially hopes and dreams and maybe even fears of the people who I've done this show with, the thought leaders, the researchers and the thinkers of today. Anyway, uh, this is just a long-winded way of me saying that I've compiled some of my favourite quotes and predictions about the future in this special mid-season episode of Futurescapes. Um, These are from various places. I will give credit where it's due right before each segment um, of some of the most prominent thinkers envisioning what the next decade will be like, so what our future will be like. So, to start off, here is theoretical physicist Michio Kaku talking about BrainNet, or this idea of connecting the brain to a computer. This is a new clip hosted on, a relatively new clip, hosted on the Big Think YouTube channel from January 2021. So I love this because BrainNet fascinates me. Like it excites me every time news about this weird thing pops up. Because as important as the brain is, there's so little that we know about it. Even though it's, it is primarily us, you know? There's so much more to learn. We are barely scratching the surface. And stuff like BrainNet might be our way inwards, ironically. Plus, just think about the possibilities in medicine, you know? Those could be endless as well. So here's a clip of Michio Kaku talking about BrainNet and what that might hold for the future of people, for the future of humanity as a whole. First, we had the Manhattan Project, which gave us the atomic bomb. Then we had the Genome Project, which allowed us to map the genes of the body. And President Barack Obama initiated the Connectome Project, a project to map the entire human brain. It is possible to connect the brain directly to a computer now. Stephen Hawking, the late physicist, my colleague, If you watch videotapes of him and look at his right frame, you'll realize that there was a chip in his right glass that communicated by radio with his brain. The chip in turn communicated to a laptop and it allowed him to type mentally. So we can now have telepathy. 
we can now combine minds with the internet, send memories, send emotions on the internet. And who's paying for it? The United States Pentagon. The United States Pentagon has already donated over $150 million for GIs from Iraq and Afghanistan who have spinal cord injuries. We can now bypass the spinal cord and connect the brain directly to the muscles of our body. And in fact, Iron Man uh, is possible to create an Iron Man exoskeleton at the World Cup Games in Sao Paulo, Brazil. There was a man who kicked the football and started the soccer games. Now, what's so important about that? That man was paralyzed. He couldn't move. At Duke University, they suited him up with an exoskeleton connected to his brain, and he was mentally able to walk and then kick the football, initiating the World Cup games. Now, that's today. You can imagine what it's going to be like in the future now when we have direct brain-computer interface. Eventually, computer chips will cost a penny, which is the cost of scrap paper. They'll be everywhere and nowhere, including your eyeball in your contact lens. You'll blink and you'll be online. And who were the first people to buy internet contact lenses? College students taking final examinations. They will blink and see all the answers to my exam right there in their contact lens. And this could be very useful if you're at a cocktail party and there's some very important people there that could influence your future, but you don't know who they are. In the future, you'll know exactly who to suck up to at any cocktail party. On a blind date, they could be great because of course your blind date could say that he's single, he's rich, and he's successful. But your contact lens says that he pays child support, that he's three times divorced, and the guy is a total loser. So yes, we're going to have almost infinite knowledge. And then beyond that, we will communicate mentally. That is, we'll be able to think about emails, think about images, memories, and send them on the internet. Already, we can record memories. We've been able to record small memory, short memories in mice. Now it's being done on monkeys. Next, Alzheimer's patients. They'll push a button and memories will come flooding into their hippocampus. And maybe one day you'll push a button and have that vacation that you've never had. So we're entering a new era where the internet itself could become brain net. BrainNet could replace digital internet. Instead of zeros and ones, you'll send emotions, feelings, memories on the internet. And of course, teenagers will love it. Instead of putting a happy face at the end of every sentence, they'll put the entire emotion, their first dance, their first date, their first kiss right there on the internet. And that's going to revolutionize entertainment. Because remember the talkies? When the talkies came, the silent movies went out of business. No one wanted to see Charlie Chaplin when you could hear actors talk. So movies are nothing but sound and a screen. Think of what'll happen when you could feel emotions, sensations, feel what the actor is feeling. Then the movies will seem so barbaric. They'll seem such like a dinosaur technology once we have BrainNet capable of sending emotions, feelings on the internet.
Up next is probably one of my all-time favorite segments courtesy of the legendary the legendary futurist Ray Kurzweil. Um he was on an episode of Impact Theory back in 2018 and he spoke about a whole bunch of things like a variety of things. I highly recommend you check out the full video on YouTube but my favorite bit was when he broke down the singularity and he explained very optimistically explained why he thought human life and the quality of life was definitely getting better with each passing year. Well, there's no question it's getting better. I mean, you track any measure of uh, human well-being, literacy. Uh, almost everybody was illiterate uh, a century ago, certainly two centuries ago. Almost everybody's literate today, and I have these charts that just show the trend on all these different measures. Poverty in Asia has gone down 95 percent over the last 25 years, and measure after measure of education, health, wealth renewable energy, all these things are moving in the right direction. We have an evolutionary tendency to emphasize bad news that was actually important for survival. You were walking through the jungle a millennium ago, you really needed to pay attention to potential bad news like a rustling in the leaves that might be a predator. That was really important. The fact that your crops were 1% better than last year, that wasn't quite as critical to be aware of. And we have a natural uh, empathy, so we hear about something horrible that happened halfway around the world to a small group of people. Our hearts go out to them. People have the wrong algorithm for assessing whether the world is getting better or worse. It's how often do they hear good news versus bad news, mm -hmm. and that's not the right measure. The world is getting uh, better by every measure, but it happens day by day, and so it's not very exciting news that, well, compared to last week, uh, literacy fell by, you know, 0.3%. And so we tend not to focus on that. Our information about what's wrong with the world, including violence, is getting exponentially better. So I say, this is the most uh, peaceful time in human history. And people look at me like I'm nuts. Didn't you pay attention to the news and you hear about that event yesterday and last week? That's because we're hearing about events and that's a good thing. It's painful. Uh, to hear about bad news, but it actually focuses us to, to solve them. Well, singularity is a complex endpoint. One of my theses is the exponential growth of information technology. And I have all these graphs of different forms of information technology, like the price performance of computing, and they're very perfect exponentials. It's a straight line or even another exponential on a logarithmic graph, and this has been going on since uh, the late 19th century. And I have a whole mathematical explanation about why that happens. We already passed the point where we have enough hardware to emulate the human brain. The little boards that actually have over 100 times the computation needed to functionally emulate the human brain already. The software is a more challenging uh, issue, but I make the case that we're moving exponentially on that also. And we're getting some of our insights by exponentially more information about the human brain. So I make the case that we will achieve human levels of performance in every area that humans can now perform by 2029. And once a, a computer achieves human levels of performance in an area, it very quickly soars past it. I mean, we saw that uh, computers could play an average game of 
go early uh, last year, and then within months soared past the best human, and then within days of that, a computer soared past that, AlphaGo Zero, and then I describe how we're going to merge with this technology in the 2030s. Medical nanorobots will connect our neocortex to the cloud, basically to synthetic neocortex, and make ourselves smarter. It'll be like what we did two million years ago when we got these big foreheads. That was additional neocortex. We put it at the top of the hierarchy. The neocortex is a hierarchical structure. And that additional neocortex, which we got with these big foreheads, that was the enabling factor for us to invent language and art and music and science and technology. We're going to do it again by connecting our neocortex to the cloud, only that time it, it won't be a one-shot deal. We couldn't keep expanding uh, our skulls or, or birth would have become impossible. But it, when we connected wirelessly to the cloud, the cloud's pure information technology, it's not limited by a fixed enclosure. It's going to keep growing exponentially. You do the math and these uh, trajectories are quite predictable and have been. I mean, I've been making forward-looking predictions since the early 80s and it's continued uh, to pan out. Uh, we will multiply our intelligence a billion-fold by 2045. That's such a profound transformation, such a singular transformation, that we borrow this metaphor from physics and call it the singularity. This clip might be a bit odd, but I wanted to feature it because what's a record of our time in 2021 if not for the looming pandemic, right? I mean, there's nothing that defines 2020 and 2021 more than that. This clip is from CBS This Morning back in January 2021 and features futurist Erica Orange talking about the future of work, the future of travel and human behaviour after the pandemic. And the reason I thought it was interesting is because whether we like it or not, the pandemic has fundamentally changed us, like all of us. And it's interesting to hear predictions of an immediate future, you know, like next week or next month or next year, instead of something a decade down the line. One very important thing to note, and that is the fact that we are being shot through what we call the COVID accelerator. It's like we're being shot through a cannon and almost overnight, global circumstances have changed dramatically. And this is really setting the stage for everything that we see happening when it comes to the future of work. There are two critical points within this COVID accelerator. The first is that whole industries, whether it's in health and medicine, retail, hospitality, they are being forced to pivot in real time and permanently in response to these unprecedented conditions. And businesses are also being forced to completely re-engineer everything from their supply chains to their operations to even their entire workforces to prevent future disruptions like COVID from putting them out of existence. Even after we get the vaccine, uh, people are still going to be nervous about going into a yeah. physical office. Although at the same time, those that do have to report to a physical office, they're going to need that space to be redesigned and reinvented. So what I, what I mean by that is the fact that we need to rethink what that physical workplace even looks like. Uh, people are going to want to be spaced out. They might want sophisticated technologies like HVAC systems, 
or even self-cleaning elevator buttons. They're going to want uh, less kind of human to human touch points yeah. and want robots or sophisticated AI to come in and fill that void so that they are more comfortable going about their day to day lives. Just like how work is going to be completely reinvented and reimagined, we too have to reinvent and reimagine our physical cities. Transportation and infrastructure are going to go through tremendous changes. And you mentioned restaurants and even just going to a coffee shop. We're going to be seeing this non-linearity of work when essentially time and space are becoming uh, kind of more muffled and we're not going to be experiencing life and work in the same manner. It's going to be different and I see it playing out on both ends of the spectrum. And what I mean by that is we're going to see the growth of high tech travel. And on the other end, we're going to see the growth of low tech travel. So on the high tech end, we see many more people being comfortable using these blended reality platforms, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality to immerse themselves in these far flung places that they can't go to now, whether it's nature halfway across the world so that they can immerse themselves in something that is sensory and kind of delights all of our senses, but you can do it from the comfort of your own home. On the low tech side, we're seeing many more people engage in kind of nostalgic acts of travel. They are packing up the family into an RV. They are taking cross country trips. They are visiting the national parks. They are kind of going back to basics and just engaging in much more simplistic acts of travel. Right. So we're seeing both of these happen at the same time. You know, say what you want about Joe Rogan, but the guy has some of the most interesting guests on his show and some of the best thought leaders in the world. Here he is with futurist Jamie Metzl talking about artificial intelligence or more specifically the fear of artificial intelligence. And I love this clip because unlike the majority of people who talk about AI, Jamie isn't fearful and is actually quite optimistic about AI and what AI can do for us. Well, there are different kinds of artificial life. So um, one is artificial intelligence. And I know people like Elon Musk and, and late Stephen Hawking are, are afraid. Terrified. Yeah. And I think that, that we need, whether it's right or not, I think it's great for us to focus on those risks. Because if we just say, oh, that's, that's crazy, mm -hmm. and we don't focus on it, it increases the likelihood of these bad things happening. So kudos to, to Elon Musk. But I also think that we are we're a, a long way away from that threat, and we are and we will be enormous beneficiaries of these technologies. And that's why my, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but that's why I keep saying it's all about values. If I think we should take those threats very seriously, and then well, values say values are so abstract, and we don't agree on them. No, it's true, but like like Elon Musk, I mean, they've set up this this institute where to say, well, what are the dangers, right? And then what are the things that we can do now? What are standards that we can integrate? for example, into our computer programming. And, and so I mentioned my World Health Organization uh, committee. The question is, well, what are, the, what are the standards that we can integrate into scientific culture that's not going to cure everything, but it may increase the likelihood we'll have a better rather than worse outcome? But isn't there an inherent danger in other companies or other countries rather not complying with any standards that we set because they would yes. be 
anti-competitive. Yes, like that would that would they would somehow or another diminish com- competition or yeah. diminish their competitive yeah. edge. Yes, it's true, and that's why and that's the balance that we're we're going to need to need to hold. <laughs> it's and it's really hard, but we have a window of opportunity now to try to get ahead of that. And like I said, we have chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons, where we've had international standards that have roughly held. I mean, there was a time when slavery was the norm and there was a movement to say, this is this is wrong. And it was largely successful. So we have history of being more successful rather than uh, than less. And I think that's the goal, but you're, you're right. I mean, this is a race yeah. between the technology and the best values. Like I said, the pandemic is a primary feature of this year and the last year. But the next clip by Daniel Kraft, who is a Harvard-trained physician scientist on TEDx, outlines how the progress we've made in healthcare just over the last year or so will create a ripple effect for the years to come. So this is basically all the innovations and all the inventions that came up because of COVID-19, because of the rush and because of the urgency, and how that's going to change the way healthcare works as a whole. And I thought that was such an interesting, maybe interesting silver lining when it comes to the the horrible, horrible years that we've had in 2020 and 2021. So part of the challenge in advancing global and local health are our models and our mindsets. We don't really practice healthcare, we practice sick care. Sick care is based on intermittent episodic data, usually only obtained within the four walls of the clinic or hospital bed. I believe the convergence of many of the accelerating technologies and approaches being catalyzed by COVID will bring us from intermittent sick care to an age of continuous, proactive, personalized, crowdsourced healthcare that can increasingly bring care anytime, anywhere, more effectively and lower costs around the planet. For example, the convergence of ever smaller interconnected devices now riding 5G is creating not just an internet of things, but an internet of medical things. And as incentives and reimbursements align, COVID has pushed us to an increasingly virtualized care from the hospital to home, to our phone, to on and even inside our bodies, the age of Hospital to hospital is upon us. Let's start with prevention. You know, while our genomes impact our health outcomes and our health spans, our social determinants of health, our sociome, and our day-to-day behaviors drive most of our risk for disease and associated costs. And we now have an explosion of new tools to help measure and improve our healthy behaviors. The first Fitbit only launched in 2009. Wearables are now ubiquitous and can measure almost every element of our physiology, behavior, and even mental health. And they're evolving all the way from disposable tattoos that can stream vital signs 24-7 to an integration of big data that can even be small data from a simple wearable tracking a patient discharged home after hip replacement or a coronavirus infection can determine if the patient's recovering as expected, walking more, doing great, or not so great, and trigger early intervention. From wristband vitals, including blood pressure, now obtainable without a cuff, and soon sensors that will measure our blood oxygenation levels to continuous blood sugar monitoring, 
to shockables, hearables, ringables that can replace an entire sleep lab fitting on our finger, to insidables, chips beneath our skin to track our physiology and lab values, to even underwearables, internet of medical things sensors so cheap today, you can get a pack of 10 of them and have one in each band of your underwear now being used to do what's called remote patient monitoring to help detect signs of respiratory decompensation in patients with bronchitis or COVID. Breathables are showing promise. Nanonoses that can detect molecules in our breath correlating to cancer, metabolic disease, and even diagnosing infectious disease. In fact, we now don't need to wear anything. Invisibles, ambient sensing from AI-enabled cameras can track our vital signs to voice as a biomarker, to manage and detect mental health challenges, signs of heart disease, now being able to differentiate between a cough from a common cold to that one caused by coronavirus. Integrating this information for the individual and public health will lead to predictalytics, our own personal check engine lights that can give us early proactive warning. And the diagnostic tools are becoming increasingly infused with AI machine learning, including consumer ultrasounds, which can bring diagnostics anywhere at very low cost, including the ability to evaluate the lungs in suspected COVID patients. Many of these diagnostics are leveraging the smartphone and its camera for a medical selfie. For example, instead of taking your urine to the lab to diagnose a potential urinary tract infection in the privacy of your home, simply dip the urine dipstick take a picture with your smartphone camera and have the results made available immediately to your doctor and pharmacy. And while AI is often perceived as a threat by some clinicians, it can't replace the human touch or empathy. And I don't think doctors or nurses will be replaced by AI, but doctors and healthcare systems who work collaboratively with AI in the future will be replacing those who don't. Finally, therapy. The pandemic has dramatically accelerated the use of Virtual visits, telemedicine visits are up on the order of a thousand percent in many settings, and I don't think we'll ever revert to pre-COVID levels, as patients and clinicians are discovering the compelling convenience and efficacy. Clinical trials are being reshaped, leveraging smart devices, cloud-based analytic platforms, and collaborators around the world. I believe this is possible if we all get out of our linear mindsets, take exponential steps, and collaboratively go forth collectively, not only to solve the challenges of this pandemic and predict the future of health and medicine, but boldly to go forth together to accelerate a far better one. Okay, so finally, uh, to close off this episode, here's a clip of Bill Gates talking to The Verge back in 2015 about how the future of education will be driven by online courses. Now, the reason I chose this clip is two-pronged. One, it's an old clip. It's six years old at this point. And technically, if you think about it, his prediction has already come true because online courses have changed the way people study. And it's literally the backbone of education in a socially distanced, lockdown-laden world. So this is the future of education today in 2021. This is the future that he was talking about. But it's also a future that has layers, right? So a lot of it hasn't come true yet. A lot of it has yet to come true. And it's cool to think that in time, Online education will decentralize the way kids and students learn and, and give them more access 
to an education than any other generation before them. They will have access to things that the generations prior couldn't even dream of, like couldn't even think of having without A, coming up with a fortune or B, not thinking of them at all. So here's that old new clip of Bill Gates talking about education to end this show. Don't forget to subscribe to Futurescapes wherever you're streaming this from. I recommend the BFM 89.9 app so that you can check out new episodes when they drop and they will drop very, very soon. This has been Futurescapes on BFM 89.9. We give more money to education than any other cause in the United States because it's the best lever we've seen for giving every child in America a chance to make the most of their lives. Some of the work we fund is focused solely on United States students and teachers, but a core piece of it, online courses, will be a global asset available to anyone with a smartphone or a tablet. Availability of the world's best teacher who can connect up and see where you're stuck and give you some advice, uh, we're not there yet. 15 years ago, we were just sticking cameras in front of people and putting it online and saying, okay, isn't that the solution? Now, people like Khan Academy and hundreds of others have said, okay, the lecture piece is part of it, but interactive problem sets and having your coach see what it is and understanding the nature of what you might be confused. And so the view is that over the next 15 years, that type of material will be wildly better than even the best is today. And it will be available through phones and tablets in a free form uh, through anyone who's got that internet connection. There is one major caveat here. Not everyone will be able to reap the benefit of this progress until we close the gender gap. In Africa, women are 24% less likely than men to own a cell phone. In Asia, it's 37%. Education is a great leveler, but if the factors that hold girls back are not addressed and if access to education isn't equal, then it can become a cause of inequity rather than a cure for it. This is particularly important because when a woman gets an education, it has a powerful ripple effect. As an adult, she earns more money. If she has children, they'll be more likely to live past the age of five. Her daughters will be twice as likely to go to school themselves. There's no way to get around the fact that more girls need to be in good schools for longer. But online education will open up new opportunities for girls with the means and motivation to take advantage of it. Primary school enrollment, secondary school enrollment 15 years ago versus today. Countries are making a lot of progress on this. The idea that parents should not keep the girl in the house, should let her go out. To primary school, that's broadly accepted. Now we need to get there for secondary school. You know, the United States now, business school, medical school, you know, male-female ratios are actually, in some cases, favoring the women. It's still the sciences, particularly the very hard sciences, and particularly you should get up to the PhD level, where we still have this huge gender imbalance. It's a very cultural thing. Each country may have slightly different tactics of how they get the parents' mindset about the investment in both boys and girls are, you know, equally valuable, equally important. As technology drives down the cost of quality education, more and more people have access to the tools they need to take control of their future anywhere in the world. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.